Hello, my name is Douglas Jacoby, and I'm very excited to present the new premium Old Testament Bible study series. The file you're listening to now includes an introduction to the series, as well as Lesson 1, which is on Adam and Eve. Of course, there are many ways to study the Bible. The only way I probably wouldn't recommend is the random method, where you just open it up and let the uh, wind blow the page for you to look at. Of course, it could work because there is good stuff on every page. The problem is you'll never really learn. It would be very hard to build and to systematize. If we want to get the Word in our hearts, we need a little bit more strategy. Well, one approach is reading book by book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Philippians, Colossians. Another approach is to look at the doctrines, the different teachings of the Bible. Teachings such as worship or grace, or maybe looking at some of the overarching themes, uh, glory, reconciliation, providence, uh, predestination. There are many exciting ways to approach the Bible, book by book, doctrine by doctrine, but person by person is the approach that we're going to be taking in this series. There are literally hundreds of men and women and children in the Bible. Some of them are major characters, some are minor In our series, we'll be looking at more than 100 figures simply from the Old Testament and, of course, beginning in the beginning, in Genesis, with characters like Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Lot, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Rachel, and many others. These lessons will be weekly podcasts. That is, each week of the year, you can look for a new lesson, and they all will remain at the site. So you can go back if you miss a week. It's no problem. Each will also conclude with suggestions for further study and further work. And because sometimes it'll be a good amount of material, though I may mention it in passing, you'll find it written at the site at the same place where you downloaded this lesson. Included will be suggestions for further study, further study in the Bible and even outside of the Bible. Key verses. That is, if you are going to memorize the location of some of the key verses, or perhaps even memorize the verses themselves, I'll give you some suggestions. Also, there'll be ideas for devotionals, parts of the passages or the characters to use in teaching children, and so forth, whatever is appropriate. I'm very excited about this series. Thank you for being part of it. Now, let's begin with Lesson 1 on Adam and Eve. Adam is referred to in only a few books of the Bible, only a few Old Testament books, only a few of the New Testament. Nearly all the material comes from Genesis chapters 1 to 5, although his name doesn't appear even in chapter 1. Now, Adam is an interesting name, and I believe, as with so many biblical characters, his name is a key to who he is. Perhaps you have a different agenda. You're wondering, well, when did he live? Was he an actual person? Was he a Neanderthal? <laughs> where, where exactly was the Garden of Eden? These are all interesting topics, but we're going to be skipping completely over these issues of creation, biology, and evolution because we want to focus on what we can learn from the lives of these men and women. If you want more, though, you'll find suggestions at the website under Recommended Reading. Adam comes from the word Adama. Now, I'm using Hebrew words here. Adama means dirt or earth or ground. And Adam 
A-D-A-M is simply two letters shorter than Adama. Adama has an A-H on the end. Well, what does that mean? It means that his name is not just a communal male name in Western culture, Adam. No. His name means earth. It's from the word for earth or dirt. Interestingly, in Hebrew, Adam simply means man. Mankind, human, humankind. In other words, we're all Adam. How about his wife? What is Eve? Well, the Hebrew word Chawa, that's H with a dot underneath, A-W-W-A-H, Chawa is living. And the text says that she's Chawa because she's the mother of all the living. And so there's a deep symbolism to these names. It's not deep in being profoundly undetectable. It's deep because it affects every generation of human history. We are all Adam. We are all Eve. Adam means human. And the reminder that he's Adam because he was taken from Adama is a hum to be reminded that he's come from dirt. From dust we've come to dust we will return. With Adam and Eve, there's very little character development. This is not the case with other figures in the Old Testament, such as Moses, David, and others like them. Rather, with Adam and Eve, we only have a couple of snapshots. We see them before the fall. We see them as they fall. And we see them as they're exiting the garden. We really know very little else about them, though this lesson will cover what I think we can know for sure. So don't expect character development for these two characters. We see in chapter 1 that they are created in God's image. 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. What does this tell us? This tells us that the image of God is in all humans, not just males, which would be the case if you believed in a masculine God and you believed in a physical image. No, we're talking about a spiritual image. And the image is equally present in the female as in the male. In other words, there's no favoritism. God created them male and female. Well, we have a second creation account because there are two. One is from Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 or 2-4. And the second account is in chapter 2. It's quite different. And it moves from the panorama of the cosmos, creation itself, the earth, to humans, to the creation of mankind. And so we see Adam, like Eve, is created in God's image. Secondly, we see he's created for work. We see in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So we see not only was he created in the image of God, but he was created for work. And you'd say, well, wait a minute, Douglas, wasn't this after the fall, after the curse? No, this is before. The curse only accentuated the arduous aspects of work. Work was there in the primeval situation. It was there in paradise. So many people tend to think, maybe we all do at times, that after we exit the stage of this life, 
we'll simply be lounging around for eternity, like some kind of lazy uh, retirement from all exertion and strain. While it's true, of course, that the Bible describes our Sabbath rest as heaven or describes heaven as our Sabbath rest, Hebrews chapter 4, it never says that there's nothing to do. And even in the Old Testament, on the Sabbath, there were certain things the Jewish people did not do, but there are other things they absolutely did. They got out of bed, for example, in the morning. They studied the scriptures, things like that. So Adam was actually created for work. And I, myself, I'm looking forward to what, it, what is on the other side, not because I won't have to do anything. In fact, I think that would get old and tiresome very, very quickly. I'm excited because the Bible teaches us that our character is being built. God works in many ways to build our character, to equip us for further service. And perhaps we've been faithful with a few things. God will put us in charge of many things. We have five cities. God will double it to ten cities. Jesus often alludes to this. So in paradise and in heaven, what awaits us? Genesis 2.15 gives us a little pointer. Originally, man and woman, was, a woman were created to work. And as it says back in chapter 1, verse 28, they were to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And also, we see in chapter 2, they were to tend the garden. So there was plenty to do. Now, thirdly, Adam was created for fellowship. He's created in the image of God, created for work. He's created for fellowship. And as we read in verse 18 of chapter 2, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now we know the story. The different animals are brought, and none of them is really a suitable helper. Now, I, I like our dog. Our family has a dog. I uh, wouldn't exactly call her a helper, though uh, she's eager to help out if there's any leftover food. <laughs> but delightful. Uh, humans have an ability to make connections with, with cats and dogs. But this is not who we're created to be with. We're created for fellowship, firstly with the Lord himself, and secondly with others. And for those of us called to marriage, that is, biblically, marriage is the normative relationship the normative state for men and women, though not for all. And this goes beyond uh, the scope of this lesson. But if you want to look at what the Bible says about being single, um, you can certainly do a study on celibacy and the value of perhaps remaining single for life if you have that gift. See, now I'm going into doctrine. And I promised you I would just focus on the characters and what we are to learn. At any rate, eventually... Adam meets his mate. He meets the ideal friend, and she is taken from him. We see the image of the surgery. Adam is uh, anesthetized. A part of his body is removed, and that becomes the woman. This now is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Genesis 2.23. She is at his side. Not below him, not under his feet to be trampled by him, not over his head to rule over him, but from his side, from near his heart, to be his companion. He is created for fellowship just as she is. Let's move now from creation to temptation. 
things become very dark in the very next chapter. In chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is going on here? The enemy, the tempter, that ancient serpent referred to in Revelation 12, the snake attacks the word of God. Particularly, he tells Eve that you will not surely die. In other words, the consequences of disobeying your master are not that great. Judgment is not such a big deal. In fact, it's Exaggerated, Perhaps it's even a lie. It comes from God's own insecurity. He doesn't want to share his sovereignty with you. He's afraid. He's threatened. Of course, this is laughable. What a ridiculous idea. But his persuasive words lead her to taste the fruit, and then, of course, she shares it with her husband. What happens in temptation? The enemy denies the word of God. And in the same way today, if the devil can get us to doubt God's word, even if we, in a sort of double think, believe it's true, but don't make the connections, that's a sort of practical doubt. We could take a Bible test and and score a, a, a hundred points, get an A on the test. And yet, if we don't really believe it, if we're doubting, the enemy has gained a victory. Notice what Eve does. She begins to correctly quote what she had heard. You must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. But then she adds something. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now, it's possible that the Lord said that to her and it simply wasn't recorded. But we don't see that. We don't see that in chapter 2. That seems to be Eve's embellishment. Does this perhaps reflect the human tendency to add to the word of God to create extra rules? Or does it reflect that she's giving in to the temptations of the serpent and casting her Lord in a negative light, like an unreasonably strict parent? In fact, God never said, you you cannot touch the tree. He said, just don't eat from it. You're to guard it. You're to protect it. You can eat from any tree in the garden. That was the only rule given to you. There was a positive rule, which, of course, was uh, be fruitful, multiply. But the only negative rule, do not eat from that tree. So Eve adds to the command. Notice also that when she gives in, it's not under duress. She's not forced to do this. Adam's not holding a stick over her head and threatening to hit her. The Lord isn't commanding her and, and, and testing her faith, as we may see in Genesis 22. No. She has a complete liberty to listen or not to listen to the voice of temptation. She's at liberty to obey or to disobey. She has, like all of us, free will. We are all Adam. We are all Eve. And of course, she gives in. She falls. And this moves to a somewhat humorous scenario where the Lord God is walking in the garden. 
And, he, and, and he's portrayed here as a gardener. Of course, God is everywhere. But for our sake, uh, he lets us view him in a more concrete way, more localized way. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? Almost the way a parent would call to a small child. And Adam and Eve are on the run. They're guilty and they feel the weight of their guilt. Notice the question, where are you? Where are you? God will ask a similar question to the son of the first family in the next chapter. After the terrible murder, he will ask Cain, where is Abel, your brother? The Lord often asks penetrating questions. Even Jesus often asks questions like this. And so he asks, where are you? Well, they're hiding. They're on the run. He's not so much trying to figure out where they are physically as though his omniscience were deficient. He's really asking Adam, where are you? And that's a good question for all of us. Where are we? How are we really doing? They're hiding. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down. That's from Isaiah 29, verse 15, and the beginning of verse 16. We can't hide from God. And yet that's one of the consequences of sin. That's one of the consequences of guilt. We become alienated from God, from others, in a sense, even from ourselves. Well, fortunately, that's not the end of the story. God doesn't say, I told you in the day you did this, you would die, and now you will surely die. No, because there's grace. There is grace. God loves his creation. He loves all of us, and he protects them. He actually protects them with his grace in a couple of different ways. You see, he makes garments for them, and that is found in verse 21, garments of skin. So there's a protection. He places the sword, a flaming sword, at the east side of the garden with cherubim. These are guardian spirits. This is to prevent the couple from re-entering the garden. Why? Because if they had continued access to the garden, they might eat from the tree of life. And if they continued to do this, and that's not the same tree as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but if they continued to eat from the tree of life, they would have immortality. That combination of free will and sin with immortality is a dreadful prospect. Imagine, for example, if Hitler were still alive, if he were immortal. I think you can see the problem we'd have if someone who were evil were also indestructible. At any rate, God in a sense is protecting Eve and Adam from themselves, driving them out of the garden. And you may also have noticed the prophecy, the prophecy in verse 15, which is considered to be the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, that is the first prophecy of the Christ. For more on that, see Galatians 3.16 and see Romans 16.20. So God's grace comes. We have creation, we have temptation and the fall, 
And now we have provision, the provision of grace. God protects them. And then there's the curse. Notice the curse is not on the people. Eve isn't cursed. Adam isn't cursed. The curse, rather, is on the serpent. The curse is on the ground. And this makes us wonder, well, did they die saved? Do they die in a right relationship with the Lord? Well, we read about the death of Adam in chapter 5, but it never says. We don't have that information. It's actually left open. Some people imagine that Adam died in the darkness apart from God. Others that, no, he found his way back. The truth is the scriptures don't say. And the scriptures don't say we need to be careful about speculation. It's left open. And perhaps it's wisest for us also to leave it open. Remember, we are living human beings. We are Adam and Eve. We too have received clear words from God. And even those who don't know the word of God have from universal nature some knowledge of God, some knowledge of the moral universe. Romans 1, Romans 2. Not only have we received the word from God, we've rebelled. We've asserted our own autonomy. And not just autonomy in the good sense of the word, as in standing on our own feet and being mature, but rather autonomy, that is the drive for self-determination, self-rule, apart from God. We have rebelled. We too are facing the consequences of this rebellion. Throughout our lives, even if you're a Christian, sin still has consequences. Sometimes the consequences predate our conversion to Jesus Christ. And the consequences still come. This is a universal law. But also, like the couple, we have received God's grace. What else do we see about this couple? Well, they have children. In 4.1, they have Cain. In 4.2, they have Abel. In 5.3, they have Seth. And apart from that, and we'll focus more on this in next week's lesson, we know really nothing of them. So, we have creation. The man and the woman are created in God's image, created for a purpose, to work, and they're created for fellowship. We see temptation. They give in. The flaw is not in God's word. The fatal flaw was that they listened to temptation. They listened to the voice of the tempter, and they fell. And then we have provision. The provision of grace. This is such a huge theme in God's word. And it's simply not true that grace is a New Testament doctrine. Nobody approaches God in the Old Testament except by grace. Nobody. The Old Testament is not a covenant of works. Nor is the New Testament a covenant of grace without works. You see, even in Genesis, this is a very strong theme. As we've seen, God provides grace to Adam and Eve, protecting them, prophesying the Christ who would eventually come and rescue their descendants, and even ejecting them from the garden for their own good. We will see later that God protects Cain. When Cain should have died for murdering his brother, God protects him. God is good. God protects the planet, in a sense, in chapter 6, with the flood. You say, wait a minute, the flood destroys people. Ah, the ark... Noah, you see, God is actually saving mankind. 
Most of mankind had already destroyed itself. But grace shines through. In chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, God protects us from ourselves by refusing to let us take all the glory and create a totalitarian state in the world. God protects us. There is grace. God comes down. He loves us too much to let us do what we were about to do. When God calls Abraham, there's tremendous grace. And we will continue to focus on this. Well, what are the suggestions for further study? Again, you'll find them at the same place where you downloaded the lesson. But primarily, you'd want to look at Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. An interesting place outside the Bible, though it's very speculative, is the epic poem by John Milton called Paradise Lost. And one interesting feature of this is that Adam is really torn. He's tortured. In Milton's understanding, Adam knows that Eve has fallen from grace, and he's trying to decide, do I fall from grace and join my wife whom I love dearly, or do I stay with God and lose my wife? And he decides to go with his wife. It's very moving. It may not be correct theologically. But I'll give you lots of suggestions for further study. Uh, For the commentaries, I would recommend, if you want a study based on the original Hebrew, the Word Biblical Commentary. And there are two volumes on Genesis by Gordon Wenham, the Daily Study Bible series, which is similar to the New Testament series by Barclay, very common, very popular, has a series on the Old Testament. And Volume 1, Genesis, is by John Gibson. And there's also the Tyndale Old Testament commentaries. And Derek Kidner has written a great volume on Genesis. All of this you'll find at the website, along with the spelling of the Hebrew words. Focusing on the children, I think there's a very simple lesson from Genesis 3. When we do wrong, we tend to make excuses, or we could say, point one, when we do wrong, we tend to blame shift. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake, you know. And point two, that sin has consequences. And even though it's okay and God will forgive us, there are still consequences. Adam and Eve still have to leave the garden. That's a very simple two-point lesson. Hey, that could make a sermon for grown-ups too, but it's not bad for kids. Next week, we'll be looking at the life of Cain and Abel as we continue our series on the characters of the Old Testament. Thank you for tuning in.